Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 41 and continue on through chapter 10, verse 12. Last week, we talked about how Jesus' disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. Jesus took a little child on his lap as an illustration and said, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. In our passage this morning, Jesus continues talking about children and how terrible it will be for those who abuse them. And this will bring up the very difficult topic of hell. Then Jesus will talk about another difficult topic, divorce. Before we go where angels fear to tread, let's pray. Lord, both of these topics are very controversial. So I pray for special wisdom and discernment for your people this morning to know whether I'm interpreting and applying your word accurately. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read chapter 9, verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hugged around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Causing these little ones to stumble is a figure of speech for putting roadblocks, so to speak, in their way that turn them away from Jesus. This could involve such things as verbal, physical, or sexual abuse, or leading them into alcohol or drug abuse or criminal activities, or could be any kind of enticement to sin or to abandon their faith. In Mark, Jesus qualifies these little ones as those who believe in me. But Luke's gospel leaves out the part about those who believe in Jesus. In other words, considering both gospels, Jesus' teaching was that those who cause any children to stumble, especially those who believe in Jesus, could result in terrible judgment. In fact, in verses 43 to 48, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed with, than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, Pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, Jesus warns those who might be tempted to cause little children to stumble to take whatever action necessary to keep from hurting these kids, even if that hypothetically meant cutting off a hand, or plucking out an eye. Now, Jesus is not suggesting they literally chop off a hand or pluck out an eye, because mutilation was forbidden in the law of Moses, and that wouldn't help anyway. Jesus was using hyperbole or overstatement to make the point that it would be better to go through life maimed or crippled than to spend eternity in hell. In verses 43, 45, and 47, the word translated as hell is literally Gehenna. 
In Jesus' time, Gehenna was a garbage dump outside the Jerusalem city walls where the fires were kept burning day and night and never went out. Everyone in Jerusalem would have been familiar with this vivid illustration of hell. In verse 48, Jesus describes hell as a place where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. More on hell later, but in the meantime, verse 50 continues the fire idea, saying, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, this doesn't mean everyone will go to hell. It has nothing to do with purgatory. The fire of hell is a place of suffering, so to, so to be salted with fire means that everyone will be sprinkled or salted with suffering. In other words, with hardships, and trials, and tribulations. As Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. So in verse 50, when Jesus goes on to say salt is good, I think he means that salt is good in the sense that God can use the salt of suffering to bring unbelievers to God and to bring believers closer to God. In Romans 5, 3 and 4, for example, Paul says, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. In other words, suffering is good in the sense that it can help to produce godliness. Jesus continues in verse 50 saying, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? I think that in this context, for salt to lose its saltiness might be the idea that suffering can only produce perseverance, character, hope, and godliness if you choose to respond to the suffering in biblical ways. Otherwise, the suffering is just suffering. It has no effect. It has lost its saltiness, so to speak. Jesus then seems to change the metaphor of salt when he concludes in verse 50 by saying, Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. You see, ideally the suffering with which believers are salted should produce believers who are salt and light. To be salt and light in this world, we need to be at peace with each other. Now remember, this whole lecture by Jesus began back in verse 33 with an argument between Jesus' disciples. Jesus is now telling his disciples, in effect, that you will be salted with suffering and trouble in this world. But if you are to be the salt and light of the world, you must be at peace with each other. I think one of the best ways churches can be salt and light in their community is by being with, at peace with each other in the church. Of course, whenever you have more than one person, there will eventually be disagreements. But I think this church is very good about unity and being at peace with each other. The subject then changes in Mark 10, verses 1 to 4. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. The Pharisees make it sound like Moses said, if you get tired with your wife, just divorce her. But that's not what the law of Moses said. Deuteronomy 24 talks about divorcing a woman because her husband finds something indecent about her. And the question was, what does indecent mean? Well, in Hebrew, the word has to do with sexual immorality, and that's how Rabbi Shammai understood it. Shammai was one of the most prominent rabbis in Jesus' time. Another prominent rabbi in Jesus' time, however, was named Hillel. Hillel interpreted indecent metaphorically. To mean a, a husband could divorce his wife for anything he didn't like about her, even if she burned his supper. The Pharisees were apparently trying to force Jesus to pick sides between rabbis Hillel and Shammai, thinking that no matter which side Jesus chose, the other side would oppose him. Either way, the rabbis and the Pharisees were looking at the law of Moses for legitimate excuses to get out of marriage. But they were missing the whole point. In verse 5, Jesus says, It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. In other words, the reason Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allowed divorce is because some people's hearts are so hard so cruel and so incorrigible that divorce may be the only option. For example, in cases of physical or severe emotional abuse, or if a spouse is molesting the children or is destroying the family through addictions and refusing to get help. But Jesus points out that Deuteronomy 24 is not all the law of Moses has to say about marriage. In verses 6 to 9, Jesus continues, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. and The two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So in other words, God's purpose in marriage involved one male and one female together until death question should never be, how can I get out of this? But how can we work this out? And by the way, notice that God made them male and female, not multiple genders. Anyway, this teaching on the permanence of marriage was apparently puzzling to the disciples because they were accustomed to thinking more liberally about divorce. So in verses 10 to 12, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, some evangelicals will concede that divorce is allowable in some cases. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference in which a theologian, uh, Wayne Grudem, even conceded that divorce is sometime allowable, and that was a big change for him. But many pastors will say that because of passages like verses 6 to 12, 
remarriage is always adultery. I disagree. The Pharisees were using Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, as an excuse for divorce. But if you read that passage carefully, you will find out that it's really not primarily about divorce at all. It is about remarriage. Deuteronomy 24 says that if a man divorces his wife and then marries someone else and then divorces his second wife, he is prohibited from remarrying the first wife. Sounds like a strange law, doesn't it? But I think the purpose may have been to prohibit legalizing adultery. For example, centuries later, Islam also prohibited adultery. But they were okay with divorce. So to keep from being punished for adultery, some Muslim men officially divorced their wife so they could marry and have sex with another woman and then they would divorce that woman and remarry their first wife. That way they couldn't be punished for adultery. I think that's what the command in Deuteronomy 24 was intended to prohibit. Jesus would say that men who do this are just as guilty of adultery as if they hadn't gone through the technicality of divorce. In fact, in Jesus' time, and I've mentioned this several times before, the ruler of Galilee, Herod Antipas, who was married, went to Rome on business and hooked up with Herodias, the wife of his half-brother Philip. But in Jewish Galilee, adultery would have been politically incorrect. So to avoid the scandal, Herod and Herodias decided that they would divorce their spouses so they could marry each other thinking this would avoid adultery and make everything perfectly legal. Jesus would say they are just as guilty of adultery as if they had never gone through the technicality of divorce in the first place. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he says anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Now, a lot of godly Christians disagree with my position on divorce and remarriage. So let me answer some objections. First, Jesus says what God has joined together, let no one separate. And Malachi says God hates divorce. But God sometimes allows things he hates. For example, God hates sin, yet he allows it. In fact, in the book of Ezra, chapter 10, although God hates divorce, he even approved of divorce in their particular situation. Although God hates divorce, God allowed divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. Second, many Christians believe that once someone is married, they are always married in God's eyes, even if they get divorced. So if they get remarried, they are always committing adultery. I disagree with that too. For example, Numbers verse, chapter 30, verse 9, teaches that a divorced woman could make valid and binding contracts. In other words, a divorced woman who remained unmarried was treated under the law of Moses as if she were single 
not as if she were still married. Also in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, Paul says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do, let him do so. An unbelieving man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. In other words, if one spouse leaves the marriage, the other spouse is free to remarry. The marriage is over, even in God's eyes. Okay, enough about divorce. Now let's go back and finish talking about hell. Hell is not a popular topic, and quite be quite candid, I don't enjoy talking about it. But since Jesus emphasized it three times in just four verses, we need to talk more about it. So here are some questions about hell. First, is hell literal or figurative? The book of Revelation pictures hell as a lake of fire and burning sulfur. But Revelation is a very symbolic book, so it's hard to know for sure how, to, how literally to interpret the lake of fire. On the other hand, in Matthew 5.22, John the Baptist talks about hell as a place of unquenchable fire. And in numerous places, including Mark 9.48, Jesus also speaks of hell as a place where the fire is not quenched. So maybe the lake of fire is not just symbolic after all. But Jesus, Peter, and Jude also speak of hell as a place of outer darkness. It's hard to understand how a literal place of fire can be a place of outer darkness. Jesus also pictures hell as a place of worms or maggots and never-ending decay. So is hell a place of fire? or darkness, or never-ending decay. That's why some scholars would say we should be careful about interpreting hell fire too literally. Whether the lake of fire is literal or not, however, the biblical fact is that hell is a very real place of terrible suffering, a place where no one will want to be. Do not trivialize it. Second question. Is the punishment of hell permanent or temporary? There are some godly theologians and scholars, people like John Stott, John Wenham, Philip Hughes, C.S. Lewis, who believe that while hell itself is eternal for the devil and his angels, people who go there will eventually be destroyed and cease to exist. Scholars who believe this base their teaching on passages like Psalm 92.7, which says, Though the wicked sprout like weeds, and evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. Or Philippians 3.18 and 19, in which Paul says, For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. On the other hand, in Matthew 25, 46, Jesus says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It seems to me that since eternal life is eternal, then eternal punishment must be eternal also. So while I would like to believe that the suffering of hell is temporary, it kind of looks like wishful thinking to me. Third, 
Many people just think the whole idea of hell is a terrible doctrine. What is actually terrible, however, is atheism, where death is the end. Under atheism, people like Hitler, Mao, and Stalin, who are responsible for over 100 million deaths, got away with it and will never face judgment for their atrocities. And their victims will never get justice. Because under atheism, once you die, it's over. More recently, some of those who raped and tortured Jewish women and roasted little babies alive in ovens may be able to hide, escape punishment, and never face justice if atheism was true. The doctrine of hell, on the other hand, says that there will be a final judgment. and Victims will get justice. Finally, is it fair or just that average unbelievers face the same punishment in hell as torturers or mass murderers? In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable of a manager who is responsible for his master's servants. While the master is gone, however, the manager becomes very irresponsible and beats the servants. Jesus says that when the master comes back, he will take that wicked manager and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Jesus then says, the servant who knows the master's will, does not get ready or does not do what the master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know, and does things deserving punishment, will be beaten with few blows. Jesus' parable is talking about the final judgment when Jesus, the master, returns. The implication of Jesus' parable seems to be that there will be degrees of punishment in hell and that not everyone will receive the same punishment. Let me leave you with just two lessons, the first on divorce and the second on hell. First, if you're just looking for biblical reasons to divorce your spouse, you're on the wrong track. God intended marriage to be until death. You should be looking for eight ways to make it work and stay together, if at all possible. And second, whether there is a literal lake of fire with burning sulfur or not, Jesus taught that hell is very real and will involve weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't just brush this off or take it lightly. Jesus loved us so much that he allowed himself to be tortured to death on the cross and according to early church creeds, even suffered in hell, to keep us from having to go there. To reject that great love, just because you're enjoying your sin or have other priorities, is the ultimate sin. If you have any questions about this, carefully read the back of your bulletin, and then come and talk to me about it. Let's pray. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is headed for hell, convict them of their sin and lead them to commit their heart and life to you in faith. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.